G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 17, Chile, Part 2. I tried everything to make friends. I introduced myself, told him how much I loved his country, promised him I'd only take the waves he didn't want. But from the moment he discovered me in his backyard, his angry black eyes told me he wanted me gone. Soon it was clear the only way forward was to show I understood what he was telling me to do. So when the next set wave arrived, I rode it through three long sections without turning. Where it closed out halfway down the bay, I lay down and rode the white water to the rocky shore with my legs bent skywards. This had shown him I knew my place. He's lived here all his life, I'm just a visitor. Perhaps he'll let me share his waves if he knows I understand. It was time for breakfast and a warm-up anyway. I set up my kitchen on top of the bus-sized rock that gives the best view of the bay and cooked up some porridge and coffee on my simple gas stove. Every few minutes, another set of long, empty waves rolled down the point. And then... What was that in the water? A big seal, presumably my new boss, was putting on a killer whale display. From a spot directly in front of my kitchen and just beyond the waves, he was flicking something a few metres through the air. It might have been a small fish or a piece of seaweed. When it landed, he'd swoop under it and flick it with his nose in the opposite direction to catch it again. It seemed he knew where I was and wanted me to see the show. But was he showing me aggression or playfulness? After breakfast, it was time to find out. With warm sunshine and the waves firing, I couldn't just sit there without another attempt to connect. I pulled on my cold, wet wetsuit and paddled out as gently as I could from the sheltered, rocky corner of the point. Focusing too much on whether the boss was beneath me, I timed my entry into open water just as the set arrived. The thick lines of white water drove me deep down and backwards, and I braced for a bite or a heavy bump in the turbulence beneath each wave. Swept a hundred metres down the shoreline by the waves and the current, I made a slow, anxious paddle back up to the takeoff spot. It seemed like a long wait for the next set of waves. I lay on my belly, feet bent skywards, arms stretched out to the tip of my board, with my eyes, ears and sixth sense straining for any sign he was behind me. At last, a set approached, and as the first wave peaked, two small seals darted from near the rocks to streak diagonally inside it. They shimmered beneath me as I paddled, nerves jangling over the wave's shoulder. The second wave was bigger and wider, and I stared at its steely wall, expecting the adult seal to appear inside it. The peak softened just enough to allow me to spin, drop in, and ride almost the length of the bay, each moment watching to see if I had company beneath or beside me. Still alone as I turned off the wave, I made another cautious paddle back out through deep, dark water. When I reached the top of the point, three or four small seals were playing happily by the rocks where the waves peaked up. They were great company through that second surf, though the memory of the adult seal's black, angry eyes haunted me till the filling tide lulled the waves to sleep and I returned to shore to rest. I was a long, long way from anywhere. Well, that's not really true. This was definitely somewhere, and a hell of a good somewhere at that. 
The Chile edition of my two-page surf report had insisted, don't leave the country without visiting this idyllic corner of the coast. So, in the last days of my five months in South America, I'd finally made it here, and it was every bit as good as the surf report had promised. The coast was hilly and wild, unfarmed apart from the small-scale timber-getting in the patches of pine forest, and waves of rare beauty and solitude wrapped round the tallest of the steep headlands. The 30 square kilometres surrounding the point were privately owned, but the very occasional small groups of Chilean surfers arriving by car on weekends had been tolerated for the past decade or so. However, a couple of months before my visit, a carelessly left surfer's campfire had spread to a sizable patch of the surrounding pine forest, and since then, all surfers had been barred from the property. If I'd known this, I wouldn't have attempted my visit. But in 1993, before the internet and social media, the total of what we knew was a tiny fraction of what we didn't. And in this case, ignorance was bliss. I'd caught two buses, the 80Ks from my base camp, to the dirt road that led, eventually, to the last crossroads before the entrance to the property. I was waiting, hoping for a bus to take me these last 20 kilometres, when a tradies truck turned onto the dirt road. He saw me, my surfboard and backpack, sitting on the shoulder, and slid to a stop in a cloud of dust. Are you wanting to surf the point? he asked me in Spanish. And he told me about the ban on surfers since the forest fire, while he tied my surfboard to the right side of his truck, where it wouldn't be seen by the guard at the gate. He said he'd tell the guard I was his apprentice, and he was probably risking his job by doing this random act of kindness for a complete stranger. What a legend. The tradesman's dog sat in the front passenger seat, so I shared the back seat with a fellow hitchhiker, an off-duty policeman travelling home to his family's farm. They both knew someone who knew someone who'd emigrated to Australia, and for the whole journey they asked me questions about life in Sydney and how it compared to Chile. I told them what I still think 30 years later. Chile's about the first country I'd choose to revisit if I could. Amazing country, fantastic people. As we approached the locked entrance gate, the tradie gave me a trucker's cap to hide my surfer's hair and told me to pretend I was asleep. Then, to make sure my surfboard remained undiscovered, he got out of his truck to check in with the security guard. Once safely onto the property, it was 20 minutes on an orange dirt track that wound round and down hills to the crossroads near where he worked. Wishing me well, he pointed me down a soft sandy road and told me to follow it three k's to the point. Mil gracias, mi compadre. I hope the last 30 years have treated you well. I walked in glorious sunshine and solitude, past tall swaying grasses and low bushy trees. The smell of warm, dry dust and a dozen aromatic plants took me home to the southeast coast of Australia. It was closer now than it had been for over six years, only 11,000 kilometres across a single ocean. After half an hour, I met a man walking in the opposite direction, the only fellow human I saw that afternoon. His weather-etched face placed him somewhere between 40 and 70 years old. After a chat in Spanish about the weather and where I was from, he directed me to a shortcut up a steep hill to a ridge where the pine forest began. When I found what seemed to be the trail a short time later, I trusted his advice that it would take ten minutes off my walk and clambered up the narrow sandy path. 
The 200-metre climb was made clumsy by the weight of my wetsuit, tent, sleeping bag, bottles of water and three days of food inside my pack, teamed with a surfboard that twisted me both ways as it brushed against the low scrub. When I reached the top, I found I'd rejoined the rough road and guessed that I should turn left to continue up the hill through the trees. Hoping to confirm I'd chosen the right direction, I listened for breaking waves in the pauses between gusts of southern breeze combing through the pine's highest branches. Ten minutes later, there it was beneath me, the bright blue Pacific, with a long beach stretching north. Then soon after, the southern end of the beach came into view, and there, where the beach met the headland, was the fabled left point, and perfect empty waves. I scrambled down through the pine forest, hid my pack behind a rock above the high tide line, and fumbled into my wetsuit. Venturing alone into an unknown empty ocean always gets the adrenaline flowing, a sensation I shared with a small seal who launched from the rocks to splash urgently through the shallows out to sea as I approached. Seals meant sharks, but surely with no humans to take their food, they'd be well fed, especially in the middle of the day. Wouldn't they? I paddled round the corner and out into some of the most beautiful waves imaginable. The nearest surfer must have been at least a hundred kilometres away. My solitude made me reluctant to sit with the shallow sandbar dropped into much deeper green blue, so I missed a couple of the bigger sets, but the ones I got were fast and long and unforgettable. And finally, paddling back out, I saw a bigger set hit the outside indicator, giving me time to paddle wider and catch the last half of the biggest best wave I saw that day. The last sections morphed from dark to light green to light gold where the wave met the rippled white sand of the beach. Paradise. After 90 minutes, the tide had risen, the waves had grown less consistent, and my shivering had grown so constant, it was time to go in. With salt-encrusted eyebrows, I warmed up in the late afternoon sun by setting up my tent, then scrambling round the rocks to explore and take some photos. I discovered a wide sea-level cave that was a bit too deep and dark to venture into alone. On sunset, I cooked up some rice, onion, carrot, capsicum and a small can of chilli con carne in an oversized metal cup on my simple gas stove. Half a small plastic juice bottle of cheap Chilean red wine complimented the meal to perfection. I could spend 500 bucks in a posh restaurant and it wouldn't have been as good. It had been one of the great days.
but now a wolf was scratching and snuffling a few centimetres from my head. I woke from several hours deep sleep and tried to figure out if this was real or the last part of a nightmare. Trapped in total darkness, I lay still, barely breathing, hoping the snuffling would go away. But it didn't. I started sweating and suddenly I was cold. I slowly pieced together the scene I couldn't see. I'd fallen asleep not long after dinner and left a plastic bag with the unwashed plate and cup, a not-quite-empty can of chilli con carne and some other food scraps tucked between my tent and its fly. What a kook. And now the local wolf pack had gathered to tear me apart. After another few minutes of pretending I didn't exist, I decided attack was the best form of defence. Flicking on my torch and summoning an odd yelling noise that made me feel like a complete idiot, I heard the wolves retreat into the forest, dragging the plastic bag with them. By the time they didn't return, I'd fallen back to sleep. At sunrise, I awoke with my throat and liver not torn out, and opened the tent to find a cold, clear, dewy morning. The swell had dropped, but chest-high waves were still rolling softly down the point. With the tide still too high, there was no rush to surf, so I could wait until the sun came up over the inland hills and have breakfast, while giving the sharks time to finish theirs. But first up was a visit to the forest for morning relief, and there I found my cup, plate and cutlery licked clean by the wolves. Later that morning I surfed some beautiful small waves, but it was clear there'd be only ankle slappers left by sunset. At lunch I finished the last of the water I'd carried in, so I set out to find the tiny village mentioned in the surf report as being halfway up the five-kilometre-long beach. After ten minutes walking, with the south wind blowing the fine sand against my legs and back, I saw three young men walking toward me in the distance. They stopped near the high tide line and knelt down to work on something. One of them stripped to his undies and was wading, then swimming into the icy ocean. Soon I was close enough to wave hello to the other two, They called me over to where they stood beside an old ship's anchor, and I watched with them as the swimmer returned clumsily to the beach. Once he could stand in shallow water, we saw he was dragging a big corbina, one of the best eating fish in the ocean. They explained that each day they took it in turns to swim a heavy baited line tied to the anchor, out to deep water, for they had no way of casting it. The fish they caught was their staple diet, and often they had enough to share with the other local families. They asked me to take a photo of them with their catch, along with their little brown puppy, that I realised later was probably the pack of wolves outside my tent the night before. Then they took me to their village. It was just a handful of simple shacks, invisible behind the low sand dunes from my campsite a couple of k's away. My new friends showed me to the village's one communal water tap, where I filled my bottle. Then they took me home to meet their mother, for they were brothers. Their mum was all but blind from the wood smoke that filled their chimneyless kitchen. She said she had ten children, five girls and five boys, all in their twenties, but so far only one had married and moved away. How she'd raised them in such a simple two-room shack was beyond my modern world comprehension. It was ten rough k's to the nearest village with a shop, and half an hour further to the closest big town. There was just one small bus in and out each week on a Wednesday. The small community lived a pretty much subsistence life from fishing and seaweed gathering. As ever, the poorest people were the most generous, 
and they insisted on giving me a couple of extra plastic water bottles to fill up at the tap. All they asked in return was a copy of the photo I took of them on the beach, which I posted to them when I got back to Santiago a few days later. I hope it reached them safely. Returning to my campsite in the mid-afternoon, I saw there'd be no worthwhile waves that evening or the next day. So I made a plan to pack up and return to Santiago in the morning. That'd give me time enough to find a way off the property and spend a half a day in the city before my flight across the Pacific home to Sydney. After writing a few notes in my diary, I went for a walk. When I climbed up onto the top of the headland, I found a rough trail leading south around the edge of the cliff. After 20 minutes scuffing along the dusty track, I just about tripped and fell off it. About a kilometre away was another bay framed by steep cliffs, bits of beach and a clump of house-sized rocks that shaped the sandbar at the southern end. Around this corner, waves, what seemed to be pretty large, long-walled waves, were wrapping. My first thought was to race back to camp, get my board and get out there. But for once, sanity prevailed. As hard as it was to accept, there just wasn't time to find a way to the waves and get a surf before dark. But surely there'd still be waves in the morning, even if the swell dropped further overnight. So if I used the last of today to find the path to the point, I could have an early surf tomorrow before heading back to Santiago. It was difficult to focus on following the path when every few minutes another set spiralled down the point. But eventually I found a narrow trail that zigzagged down the cliff. At sea level I followed a thin strip of beach to another small headland. Here I found a natural tunnel through the rock to another small beach beneath the cliffs. Then a scramble over low grey rocks brought me to the place that seemed the best jump-off spot. Job done. Place sussed. Up close, the waves looked well overhead, and some ran for nearly 200 metres. This point was much more exposed to the open ocean swell and wind compared to the point where I was camped, so the strong cross-shore made the waves a bit messy, but they still kept their shape as they rumbled down the bay. In the last half hour of daylight, I mind-surfed each set, figuring out where the best take-off spot would be. It was frustrating to watch such good waves go unridden but I'd been right in guessing I wouldn't have time to get my board for a surf. And to be honest, it was a bit of a relief. Surfing sizeable, unfamiliar waves all alone at shark feeding time would have been a bit more edgy than fun. If only I'd discovered this point a couple of hours earlier. Anyways, I took a couple of photos and not far from dark, retraced the path back to my campsite for dinner and sleep. The next morning... Before the sun had risen over the inland mountains, I was scrambling up the headland with my wetsuit, board and day pack loaded with some food and water. Now I was familiar with the path, it seemed shorter than the day before. After ten minutes, I got my first glimpse of the waves. As expected, the swell had dropped, but so had the wind, and long waves were still rolling down the point. Once down the cliff, along the first beach and through the rock tunnel, I was surprised to find three locals gathering seaweed and laying it out to dry in the grass between the sand and rocks. Their horses waited patiently in the shade. We waved and smiled silently from a distance. Having company in the bay, no matter how removed, made me feel a little less alone as I paddled out into the vast Pacific. The waves were epic, 
eight-foot faces, glassy and long, becoming steeper and faster in the last sections of the ride. My dream surf was completed by several pelican squadrons gliding north in regal displays of close-order flying, their wingtips almost drawing lines on the open ocean swells. It was an hour and at least ten great waves later that the grumpy seal we met at the start of this chapter forced my return to shore for breakfast. Before I'd finished my coffee that morning, I'd decided I had to delay my return to Santiago to get another surf at this point. Seeing the seaweed gatherers' horses on the beach convinced me there must be a direct route from here to the crossroads where the tradie had dropped me. The cliff trail I'd walked in on was surely too steep for horses. I guess there'd be another trail inland from the beach that stretched to the south from my new point. So instead of trekking back to the crossroads after decamping at the first point that afternoon, I'd move my campsite to this bay for the night. Then I'd have an early morning surf before trekking to the crossroads on the new trail I hoped to find. I'd be cutting the time for my return trip to Santiago down to the bare minimum, a bit of a gamble as my flight across the Pacific was non-refundable. But these waves, this place, were so worth the risk. How many opportunities like this do you get in a lifetime? So in the early afternoon, I fast-walked back to my original camp to fetch my gear. Looking down from halfway up the cliff path, I watched two adult seals playing in the deep water directly beneath me. Was one of them the grumpy one who chased me in from my first surf that morning, then put on the killer whale display? Were they the parents of the little seals who kept me company through that second surf? Did they know I'd see them from the cliff path? I know, I know. But I promise. If you'd been there, you'd have asked the same questions. By the time I'd scuffed round to my original camp, packed my tent and bag, then fast walked back round to my new home, the tide had dropped and the waves were cranking. I left the tent construction till later and paddled straight out. As soon as I arrived out the back of the point, the little seals came to say good day again. The evening was overcast and absolutely still. As I waited for that first wave, the tall headlands were doubled by their mirror reflections in the ocean's green glass. When the first set came, it was bigger than what I'd thought from the beach. I paddled wide of the first two, then turned and went on the third. Looking down as I dropped, it was hard to see where the surface of the water began. It was like riding on air. Then inside the wave, right beneath me and slightly ahead, there was the big seal. My first thought was that my surfboard fins might hit her, but she knew exactly what she was doing. As I turned off the bottom or banked off the top, so did she, just a metre ahead, and we raced that wave together the length of the bay. She disappeared as I turned off the wave, and I didn't see her on my long paddle back out. But she was waiting for me when I arrived at the top of the point, and this time she'd brought the whole family. Perhaps I'd been accepted, maybe even adopted. We rode those waves together into the dusk, till my lips and fingers turned blue in the cold. Sorry to get all hippie romantic on you, but seriously, my last surf in South America was, well, I can't do any better than Ricky Baker's Majestical. Sunshine. 
If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. You can find the text of the stories at jameswiley.com. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. Thanks for dropping in. See ya. See ya.